Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in John chapter 3. In our last audio, we took up John 3, verses 1 through 10, where Jesus encounters Nicodemus in his famous nighttime meeting where he personally evangelizes Nicodemus and tries to get him to see the kingdom of God. We're going to do part B of that encounter in verses 11 through 21. This will include, of course, the famous John 3:16 verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So we're going to be talking about Jesus and Nicodemus' personal evangelism, part B. And I'm going to, going to do this by splicing in an, an, an audio of a teaching I did in, in a church in Atlanta in which I covered these verses. That splice begins now. I feel sort of guilty when I heard Nathaniel said his whole family was sick. I know who got him sick. It was me <laughs> because I was there Friday night. Just now getting over it, I feel a lot better today. And I also was happy to uh, learn before church this morning that Robert Thomas's first acting job was as a real estate lawyer, remember? And that's my first acting job. I was a real estate lawyer, and I was acting like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> we were talking last week about Jesus's personal evangelism of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a big shot in Israel. He was a... Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament law. He knew the traditions of Moses. He was a ruler. That means he was on the Sanhedrin. He was the, uh, a ruler of Israel. So he was a political big shot. And he was also, the rabbis tell us, one of the three richest men in Israel. He didn't have a clue about how to get into the kingdom of heaven. He thought he was already there. He goes to Jesus at night, probably because of fear of his fellow Pharisees. They might not take too kindly to this teacher, Jesus, who is talking about taking their privileges away. He goes to him at night, and Jesus immediately moves the conversation away from Jesus being a great teacher to how do you get born again? How do you see the kingdom of God? And you remember that Jesus used natural analogies to teach about the kingdom of God, two natural analogies. One was the human birth process. Jesus said you need to be born not only of the flesh, which I take to be when he says of the water of water and the spirit of water of the flesh, means the natural birth process when the amniotic fluid comes out, and that's how you get born that way. And Nicodemus didn't understand. He said, wait a minute, i got to be born twice. i got to be born again. i got to go back into my mother's womb and come out. And Jesus says, no, Nicodemus, no, Nicodemus, you hadn't got it right. That's not right. you got to be born like the Holy Spirit gets you born again like wind. And how is wind? It, wind comes from, from whence it comes, you don't know. Where it's going, you don't know. It's powerful, just like the Holy Spirit. You can't see him, but you can see the effects of him. So Jesus is teaching Nicodemus how to be born again. So we'll take it up here in John chapter 3. And I'll reread verse 10 from last week and go to verse 12. Jesus answered and said to him, to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? So Jesus from the very get-go was trying to say, Nicodemus, you don't just inherit the kingdom of God. You don't understand the kingdom of God. You don't understand how to get born again. Verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now, First of all, who is the we? Well, it could be Jesus and John the Baptist. It could be Jesus and the disciples. It could be Jesus, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. People don't really know. Or it could just mean Jesus speaking like the royal we. You know, the king says, we are going to raise your taxes when it's just one king. I think it's probably Jesus and the disciples. And he says, Jesus is saying, I'm testifying what I've seen. He's seen the kingdom. He's been in heaven. He knows about the kingdom of God. And you don't accept our testimony. Now, how did Nicodemus not accept the testimony of Jesus. 
It's because he didn't understand it. He keeps saying, you might got to go back into my mother's womb and come out again. You don't, you don't believe in what I'm telling you. So Jesus there says, we are speaking of what we know. We know. And there's an implicit rebuke there. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't have a clue what you're talking about. But I know. I know what the kingdom of God is and I'm about to tell you how you can get into it. And then he says in verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Well, what were the earthly things that Jesus had told Nicodemus? What two earthly analogies has he used in the first part of chapter 3? All right, there's one, Ed, wind. That was one. What was the other one? Natural birth, right. And didn't work. Nicodemus still didn't understand. He says, okay, now I've, I've used earthly analogies. Now what if I just tell you directly what it means to get born again? Uh, the spiritual stuff that we all take for granted today, Nicodemus didn't know. And he says, if you didn't believe the earthly, you didn't understand the earthly analogies, you're sure as heck aren't going to understand what I tell you straight. So basically he's saying, Nicodemus, you're clueless. And um, I'm, I'm getting ready to tell you about how to get born again. Now remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. What are Pharisees famous for? Legalism. And if you think about the New Testament, what is the number one problem the early church had? Legalism. I mean, Galatians, Romans, you know, it's everywhere. You know, everybody, every human being thinks they can get to heaven by being good. I'm a missionary. I'm a pastor. I'm whatever. I give all my money to the poor. I help little old ladies across the street. I don't cuss, smoke, or chew or run with those who do often. <laughs> yeah. It's all I'm me, 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 how good I am, all right? Now, remember Nicodemus in the eyes of Jewish society, and in fact, in his own eyes, I'm sure, he was a very good person, I mean, as I pointed out. So, Jesus is going to start aiming at his legalism. Now, this is an interesting verse. The next verse, verse 13, Jesus says to Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read that verse in the past, I used to think, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, first of all, there's a little problem here. No one has ascended into heaven. What does Jesus mean, no one has ascended into heaven? How about Enoch? You remember Enoch? Enoch, what does it say? He was not. He, he went straight to heaven. And in fact, in Hebrews 11, verse 5, it tells us that he, Enoch didn't die. He went straight to heaven. Well, he ascended into heaven, did he not? How about Lazarus when Jesus rose him from the dead? Did he ascend into heaven? Now, some people say, no, he went down into Hades and all this holding tank kind of, I don't believe that stuff. So, so I, I believe he went to heaven. And how about the uh, widow of Nain, the son of the widow of Nain? How about anybody who had died before Jesus? Don't they ascend and go to heaven? So what does it mean no one has ascended into heaven? What did Jesus mean by that? Maybe it means nobody's come back to talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, it could be, but it could be no one has ascended into heaven and come back to tell us what was up there. Okay, that's, that's an answer. I hadn't thought about that, but that's, that's reading a lot into it, but that could be. <laughs> it could be what it is. Um, well, it turns out the commentators and the theologians kind of debate this a lot because it's kind of a strange saying. Some people say that it, he actually ascended into heaven at some time before he was talking to Nicodemus. Well, I have trouble with that because the verb there, ascended, is, is in the perfect tense, which means completed action in the past. No one has ascended. So I don't think that's it. Some people say it's a spiritual, uh, figurative sense. No, Jesus ascended into heaven spiritually, i.e. by praying and so forth and accessing God the Father. And he had perfect access to God the Father. So he ascended in a figurative sense. And some people say, well, but the problem with that is he, he came down from heaven. Well, let me ask you first, when did he come down from heaven? He who descended from heaven. 
When did Jesus descend from heaven? When? In the incar- incarnation, when he was born of the Virgin Mary. So, so some people say, well, why did he need to go up to heaven to find out about heavenly things? Didn't he know it all when he was incarnate, when he was born of the Virgin Mary? But I thought about that and think, I thought, well, Jesus had to learn things when he was a kid growing up. He learned through the things that he suffered and experienced. He didn't know everything. He had to study the Bible. He studied the Old Testament. He knew it pretty good by the time he was 12 or so. But he had to study and learn things. And he was constantly praying to the Father. He spent all night in prayer before he picked the apostles. So, I don't know. I think it means that he ascended into heaven spiritually, figuratively, to, to, to know about what's up there, about the kingdom of God. Now, it could be short for no one has ascended into heaven and remains in heaven. No one has ascended into heaven and continually stays in heaven except Jesus. It's not clear. But anyway, there's another problem. What did Jesus mean by this when he said no one has ascended into heaven? What, did, what was he getting at? You got any idea? Yeah, I mean, she said it. I think it's talking authority. He's, he's got authority to speak on these things because he's been in heaven. That's right. No and no one else has, except that we just said that some people have been to heaven. But now come to talk about it. All right. But let, let me, let's, let's try to focus on this a little bit more. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 30.12 and see where Jesus is quoting from. Deuteronomy 30.12 says, It, referring to God's law, is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Now, what Moses was talking about, he's saying, Look, guys, here's the law. You can keep it. You don't need to have to climb up to heaven to find the law. He was talking about works. You don't have to climb up there. You can do it. You can do it down here on earth. Now Paul in Romans 10 verse 6 quotes that verse and he says this, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 30 and this is what Jesus is talking about here. What did Paul mean in Romans 10 when he's saying But the righteousness based on faith, and I emphasize that phrase, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. What's Paul talking about in the book of Romans? Works righteousness versus faith righteousness. And he's saying the righteousness based on faith is not the kind of righteousness that says, I can go up and get it by my works. So this verse is actually an anti-works verse. He's saying it's righteousness based on faith that says I can't climb up into heaven to get it. And so when Jesus is telling Nicodemus this, no one has ascended into heaven, he's saying, Nicodemus, you can't get up there to see the kingdom of heaven. You think you're a big shot. You think you've got it made because of all your learning and all your money and all your power. You don't have anything. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the fundamental problem of the human race. We all think we've got it and we don't. We think we're good enough to see God and we don't. And Nicodemus, especially when we're so-called good people, you know, we didn't snort drugs when we were a kid and, and, and be wild and act crazy, but we we're good, solid, respectable citizens. Those are the hardest people to witness to because they don't think they need God. There's another verse that's similar to this in Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. In other words, who is the only one who can ascend into heaven? Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Only God can do that. So now this is what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus, only God can let you see the kingdom of heaven. You can't see it by your good works. 
And he mentions he has descended from heaven. That was Jesus in the incarnation. And then he uses this phrase here, the Son of Man. No one has ascended into heaven but the Son of Man. Now, that probably doesn't really ring on our English ears too much, but what does Son of Man mean? What's, I, I, you should know this because I heard on tape, Steve mentioned this on one of his pre- previous tapes. I listened to the audio. He taught y'all what the Son of Man meant. Do you remember? little review here. Ed, you tell me. That's very good. Ed was listening. Good. Daniel 7, verse 13, 14. Let's see if I can find that, that scripture here. Here it is right here. I'll read it. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So here in Daniel, the Son of Man is given a kingdom. Okay? Well, who can get a kingdom from God the Father? Who can rule a king? Only God can do that. So, one like a son of man was coming. That was a messianic term that referred to God. So when Jesus, and Jesus was, he used that term about 90 times of himself in the Gospels. No one except Stephen in Acts 7 mentions the son of man, uses the term of Jesus. Jesus himself used it of himself. When he said son of man, what he was saying is, I'm God. I'm God. Now, Nicodemus was well-learned in the Scriptures. Do you think he might have understood that, that reference? This is a very famous passage in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He knew what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is saying, I'm God, Nicodemus, and I can ascend into heaven and, and find out about the kingdom of heaven and come back and tell it to you, and I can get you in there, but you can't. That is what he was driving at. Driving at. Now, let's look at this phrase, Son of Man, a little bit closer because I found some interesting stuff about this. First of all, when we say son of, that means like father, like son. Like, for for example, James and John were sons of thunder. That means they were like thunder. Well, son of man sounds like Jesus was like a man. So you would think this term would emphasize his humanity. Well, it does, actually. There's no, no problem with that. But it came to be referred to as a divine term. Uh, Let me give you an example of where Jesus used it in Mark 2.10. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's when he raised the paralytic up from his mat that was let down through the roof. And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. I'm divine. I, I can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So he uses that all the time as a divine term. Now, Daniel, when he made that statement in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, he was working in the Middle East. Of course, he was taken off into exile from Israel. And he started out working in Babylon. And then when the Persians wiped out Babylon, Daniel moved from Babylon to Susa, which was in Persia. But he spoke, he, he operated in the old Babylonian language. And that, in the old Babylonian language, the term son of man meant the prince who was about to receive the kingdom from the Persian king. So when Daniel even used the term, it was referring to a a son about to receive the kingdom from his father. So it's a perfect term to refer to Jesus. All right, so now let's go to verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus continues speaking to uh, Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now this is a strange analogy really because now we have Jesus compared to a snake. Now why would we compare the Son of God to a snake? I'm going to pick on Denton since he's close. You can, I can get you on the tape. Yeah. yeah. So it's the meaning behind what happened. So Moses lifted up the servant to save the people. That's right. Do you recall the incident? Snake bit. Yeah, they were snake bit and they were all dying and so 
the the odd thing was to, God says, you know, put this fashion this bronze and serpent on a staff and stick it up, and all who look upon it will be saved. We'll be, we'll be, that's right. We'll be saved. We'll be healed. Right. That's in number, Numbers 21, 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. And the children of Israel got bitten by fiery serpents, it says, and the NIV says poisonous, venomous snakes or something like that. They don't really know what exactly bit them. All right, so now Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now let's talk about how Jesus is like the serpent, all right? How, how is Jesus like that fiery serpent? Well, it's like I said, all that look upon the serpent would be saved. So all those who put their faith that the serpent that God provided would save them from that snake bite. Jesus is the same for us. If we look upon him, what God provided on the cross is our Yeah. And when God is looking down at Jesus on the cross, what does he see? Our sin. Our sin. Yeah. And so just as that fiery snake represented, or just as that snake was represented evil and poison and venom and all the bad stuff that snakes... I hope, I hope none of you like snakes. I don't. But uh, just as the snake represented all that was evil and all, when God looked down, the Father, God the Father looked down on God the Son. That's what he saw. He saw the sins of the world on the cross. So it's a perfect analogy. And then, of course, Jesus took away the sins, as you mentioned, just as the, as, uh, the fiery serpent in the wilderness took away the sickness. Okay. I remember when I first read that, it sounded to me like sympathetic magic. You know, yeah, how, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, I said, oh, this is weird. Yeah. Well, the snake was lowly. The brass metal itself was, a lo- it was not gold or silver. It was lowly. Everything was lowly about that snake. Think about Jesus when he was on the cross. Isaiah 53, second half of verse 2 and verse 3. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. So that's a very, very good analogy there. Now, what about the lifted up? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, remember Moses put the serpent up on a standard, on a pole. How was Jesus lifted up? Yeah, that's what that means. It means lifted up on a cross so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, I'm going to talk about in the next verse about believes a little bit. But for right now, what's the definition for belief? What does belief mean? Trust, and what's another synonym? Faith, right. Faith, trust, and belief, it all means the same thing. Now, if I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4, is that the kind of faith that we're talking about here? Huh? No, because that's intellectual assent. Faith that that's talking about here is you have trust in someone to follow them to the death. The old analogy, you know, would you walk... Would you let somebody uh, go across Niagara Falls on a wire with a chair? Oh, yeah, I believe he can do that. Would you sit in the chair? Now, this is all about sitting in the chair faith. You know, you got to follow him. You know, you got to believe him. All right? Now it says you will have eternal life. Now, Jesus is getting Nicodemus now. This is the kingdom, the eternal life in the kingdom. What does eternal mean? All right? It has, of course, the idea of time, timelessness. Time never stops. Life after death. It also has the feeling... According to the Greek, an idea of the quality of life. It's higher than this life. But going back to the timeless idea, I was looking at Steve's dog, Ivan. I've gotten to know that dog pretty good. And I was thinking about this as I was going over my notes. Ivan sits there, and he doesn't worry about what happened yesterday, and he doesn't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. That dog is timeless. He lives in the now. And I suspect that when we get to heaven... We're going to live in the now and enjoy every day like it's right now. We're not going to worry about anything or have any regrets about what happened in the past. 
Amen. That's right. This, this life is a veil of tears. Everybody suffers. Every, I don't care who they are. They suffer. Things go wrong. Things go bad. We screw up and other people screw us. I mean, that's just the way it is. But in heaven, it's not going to be like that. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, you're going to have eternal life. Now we go to the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, first of all, we've got to decide what world means. Now, if I asked you, what does it mean, world, for God so loved the world? And you told me that, well, world means every individual in the world, right? That's simple enough. Okay, well, if it means that, we've got a problem. Let me substitute in here that, that definition, everybody, every individual in the world. For God so loved everybody in the world, every individual in the world without exception, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son to every individual person in the world to judge the every, loved pers- every single person in the world, but that every single person in the world might be saved through him. You see a problem? The problem happens right there at the end of verse 17. So that every individual person in the world might be saved through him. Is that going to happen? We should have a hearty answer, and I don't hear a hearty answer. It worries me. What? No, that's not going to happen. Not everybody's going to be saved. I mean, Jesus, I mean, it, well, now there are people out there who say that everybody's going to be saved, but they're, we, you know, they're heretics. They, Jesus clearly said that there's a heaven and a hell. There's going to be judgment. He's going to judge the world at the end, all right? So the world there can't mean that. Now, I do believe that God loves every single person in the world because of uh, he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. I believe that, but I don't believe that's what John is saying here, what Jesus is saying here. All right, that's the first option. I don't think it works. Let's look at another option. I think this does work, but I don't believe it's what John was talking about. Some people say the world there means the elect, the chosen of God. So let's substitute in here. For God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son in, uh, to the elect to judge the elect, but that the elect might be saved through him. Does that work? Is there any contradiction that you say? Yeah, it works. Right. Uh, and in fact, I've got two verses here also in John where the world is used in the sense of the elect. For example, in John six thirty three, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Life to the elect. Only the elect have life. Son of God doesn't give life to people who don't believe in Him, all right? John six fifty one. I am the living bread that come, came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that I give for the life of the elect is my flesh. Because Jesus doesn't give His life for his flesh for those who don't believe in him because if he did they'd be saved and we know that everybody's not saved so that does work and we have some scriptural background but let me tell you in my humble opinion i could be wrong this is what i think that john was talking about he was talking about the gentile world as opposed to the jewish world now remember jesus is jewish and nicodemus is the jew of jews he's the hebrew of hebrews he's really jewish and nicodemus thinks he's just gonna get saved because he's jewish so let me read it that way for god so loved the Gentile world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the Gentile world to judge the Gentile world, but that the Gentile world might be saved through him. And thus, Nicodemus, you need to understand that salvation, this kingdom of God we were talking about, is not only for the Jews, it's for everybody. It's for the whole world. It's for Indonesians, Chinese, Japanese, Irishmen, Californians, everybody. (laughs) 
Alright? Now you say, well, how can you prove that? Well, let's look at some scriptures that tend to back that up. Romans eleven twelve. Now, if, this is Paul writing, now if there, referring to the Jews, now if the Jews' transgression is riches for the world, that's talking about the Gentile world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now what Paul is saying is, look, the Jews rejected, so now the uh, the, uh, the messengers of the kingdom are now moving from the Jews to the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles get saved too. That's what he's talking about. But notice the parallel there. He says, the Jews' transgression is riches for the world, and their failure, the Jews' failure, is riches for the Gentiles. And it's a perfect parallel. The world refers to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. Romans eleven fifteen. For if there, the Jews' rejection is the reconciliation of the world, the Gentile world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And again, that's the whole theme of Romans 11 is Jew, Gentile versus Jews. You go back and read that, it, it becomes, the impact is stronger. So the Jews' rejection is the reconciliation of all the Gentiles that are in the world. And this is a good one here, 1 John 2, 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, our Jewish sins, and not for our Jewish sins only, but also for those of the whole world. In other words, it's not just for us, it's for everybody in the whole world, not every individual person, because then it would mean everybody gets saved. We know that's not true. All right, here's another good one, Luke twelve thirty four. all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, Nations of Gentiles, nations of the world, the Gentiles in the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. You go to the parallel passage of Luke 12 and go to Matthew 6, verse 32. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. So Luke says the nations of the world eagerly seek these things. Luke says the Gentiles seek these things. So you see a clear parallel connection between world and Gentiles. So... I believe that's what Jesus, again, going back to our theme here, is Jesus is trying to convince Nicodemus that I don't care what your status is. I don't care anything of your works righteousness. It ain't going to get you saved because God came to save everybody, not just Jews. Now, I could be wrong about that, I admit, but I think, I think it fits with the theme very well. Hey, yes, sir. Quick. In John 1.10, it says he came to the world, and the world did not know him. Then in verse 11, it says he came to his own Jewish people, and they did not perceive Good. Jews in the world. Yeah, that is good. That's where is that in John 1? John 1. Okay. All right. Well, now I hope we've taken care of the world, but now there's a couple of things that this is dedicated to my Greek teacher, Ed Cowett. He's been teaching me Greek over the phone, and he pointed out a couple of things that are kind of interesting here. Uh, For God so loved the world. Now, we've heard that verse a million times, right? What does it mean? I hate to keep picking on Denton. Let me pick on Owen this time. What does God so love the world? What does so mean? Greatly. Okay. That's how everybody takes it, right? Do you know that the Greek word, which is hutos, cannot be translated that way? It means in this manner. For God in this manner loved the world. That's what so means. But somehow the English is ambiguous. That's what the, the Greek is not ambiguous, but when we get into English, there's an ambiguity there, you know? Now, it doesn't make any difference because God obviously loves the world very much, so it's not a big deal, but, but I thought I would bring it up to you. How did God love the world? Well, he could be referring to the previous verse in verse 15 where it says the Son of Man must be lifted up, and in this manner he so loved the world. Or it could be referring afterwards, uh, the verse 17, excuse me, yeah, verse 17, for God sent his Son into the world, no, that's not it, that the world might be saved through him, and that way he, he, he loved the world by sending the Son into the world to save 
save people in the world. So, so means in that matter. Now, now Ed also brought up another point on this verse. Believe. Where's that verse? Believe. Oh yeah, here it is. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. All right, Ed, I'm going to let you shine here. Tell me what believes means. So, just a little technical. It's really a parsable and and really it means like uh, the one who is believing and that stresses the nature of a constant faith. Yeah. It's not just a one-shot thing. The idea is this is a faith that a person has. It's a living faith. It's a uh, present tense uh, emphasizes a continuous action. So like someone would be a person who lied, did lie. A liar would be a person who's characteristically lying all the time. We call him a liar. So this would be a believer, not just one who does a one-shot thing, goes to the altar or something like that and says they believe, and then the rest of their life's a mess. This is one that faith is a characteristic of their life. They're constantly believing. That's characteristic of their life. It's a continuous uh, continuous attitude during their whole life. Here's a quote from the uh, uh, a famous Greek grammar. It says, The present was the tense of choice most likely because the New Testament writers, by and large, saw continual belief as a necessary condition of salvation. Now, why is this important? Well, for example, I've got a brother who, when he was young, he went to one of these Billy Zioli evangelistic film type meetings, and he raised his hand and said he believed in Jesus. And since that time, for 50 years, he has not shown one bit of evidence that he's a believer. Not one. Not, one, not, not even a little tiny bit of fruit. Well, you know, when you see that, you think, well, you know, if, if somebody is born again, if a seed is planted into the ground, it's going to grow some fruit. It might not be a lot, but it's going to grow something. So this, what, that verb there means that you continue to believe. You continue to believe. It doesn't mean you just say, oh, I believe, and then you go out and live like hell. You know, it doesn't mean that. This whole, this whole passage is about people who think they're spiritually got it made, and they don't. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of preachers, there's a lot of big shots in the kingdom of God who think they've got it. They're on TV, a lot of them. They think they've got it made. They ain't got it made. They're in trouble is what they are. All right, let's look at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. All right, let's read some other verses where Jesus said he did not come into the world to judge the world. John 12, verse 47 If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Here's another one. John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hopes. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to accuse you before the Father. He doesn't judge the world. So that's easy enough. Why does he not need to judge the world? Already judged. And how is it already judged? It's cursed. It's cursed. And why is it cursed? Because of Adam's sin and his sin passes down to us and we're all sinners and we're all already judged. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He didn't need to. He was already judged. All right, that's easy. Now, here's the hard part. I got some scriptures here that said Jesus did come to judge the world. And we know the scriptures don't contradict unless you're a liberal heretic. But, you know, we know that the scriptures don't contradict each other. So let's, let's, let me read this verse here. John 5, 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He, the Father, has given all judgment to the Son. Now, oh, doesn't that sound like a direct contradiction? He did not come into the world to judge the world, but God, the Father, has given all judgment to the Son. We have to reconcile it. We don't say, oh, the Bible's got errors. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. 
How do we reconcile it? Yeah, Ed? So God's given the son judgment, the right to judge, but it doesn't say when he's going to do that. The son says he's going to do that in the future. That's the reconciliation right there. Yeah, John 3.17 that we just read, that refers to the time of Jesus' first advent. And John 5.22 where it says God has given all judgment to the Son, that refers to Jesus' second advent. So actually that reconciles pretty easy. But now here's another one. In my opinion, it's even harder. John 9.39, Jesus said this, For judgment I came into this world. For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. How do you explain that? I mean, all right, let me, let's, let me show you the contrast again. John 3, 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. John 9, 39. For judgment I came into this world, Jesus says. That sounds like a flat-out blatant contradiction. We have to reconcile that. How do we do that? i tell you what, since I can't express this too well, let me, let me, uh, let me give you a quote from the... Th- the famous gospel writer, uh, uh, theologian Pink. What was it, the A.W. Pink, I think his name was? Here's what his quote is. Well, here's what he says. He says, the object of his mission was salvation. He didn't come into the world to judge. That wasn't his purpose. He came into the world to save people. But the moral effect of his life was judgment because as soon as people saw Jesus, they had to say, oh, I accept or I reject. And Jesus' words and his way of life judged people who didn't accept what Jesus said. But that wasn't Jesus' purpose. That's not what he came for. Just the contrast. Yeah. yeah. Men love darkness rather than light, lest they need to be exposed. Mm. Just by Jesus being in the world, people are going to feel judged. Mm. They won't come to the light because it's truth, because that's they true. know they're under condemnation. Right, right. And that's, and that's the next verse, which we're going to in just a minute. Yeah, and I think you're right. Here's A.W. Pink's quote, He was the light of the world, and this light acted in a double way. It convicted and converted, it judged and it saved. Furthermore, it dazzled by its heavenly brightness all those who thought they saw, while at the same time it lightened all those who really felt their moral and spiritual blindness. He came not to judge but to save, and yet when he came, he judged every man and put every man to the test. So, I think that reconciles. That's difficult, difficult to reconcile, but I think that does it. So now let's finish up here. I'm going to do three more verses, 19, 20, and 21. Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And this is what Ed was saying, that Jesus, just by coming into the world, he causes judgment. You have to have to judge that you're for him or you're against him, one way or the other. Now, note what the sinners did in order to deserve their condemnation here. They what did they do? They loved darkness rather than light. They did evil. Their deeds were evil. And in verse, I didn't read verse 20, for everyone who hates evil hates the light. They hated the light. Of course, the light was Jesus. So they judged themselves, basically. They did evil and they hated Jesus. Well, you do that. That wasn't Jesus's purpose, but that's going to happen if you, if you hate Jesus. Now, notice here, Uh, Let me read verse 20 and 21. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now who is the light that John is referring to here over and over again? Who's the light? Don't all speak to me at once now. Who's the light? This is an easy question. I'm not going to trick you. I'm not going to do it. Who is it? Jesus, right. The light is Jesus. And so everything is focused on Jesus. Do you come to Jesus or do you not? Now, if you do, 
walk in the truth and come to the light, your deeds may be manifested as having been wrought or done. How? What's the last two words in my New American Standard translation here? What's the last two words? How are your deeds wrought when you come to the, lo lo to the light? Yes, in God, as opposed, Nicodemus, to in the flesh, because you're out here doing all this good stuff for God. That's not... Nah. You come to the light, your deeds are going to be done in Jesus Christ or in God. They're not going to be done in your flesh. Hardest thing that every Christian has to learn, every human being has to learn. Now let's finish up here by talking about how Jesus is the light. Uh, John mentions this metaphor a lot. John 1, 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. John 8, 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, verses 35 through 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, while you have me. Lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Over and over and over again. Light. John, 4, John 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So there you have your common metaphors. Sin and evil is dark. Jesus is light, righteousness. All right? Now, do you remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? What did, it was Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain with Jesus. What did they see when they saw Jesus? It was at night, remember? What did they see? Jesus was a bright, shining light. Now, this is total speculation on my part, but I've always been fascinated by one thing uh, in physics, is that what is the ultimate speed that anything can go in the universe? Speed of light. And according to the theory of relativity, which has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, as things start, like let's say that light is going this fast, and then uh, let's say a spaceship is, is catching up to the speed of the light, what happens to the clocks in the spaceship? They start doing what? Going faster or going slower? They're going slower. So the closer you get to the speed of light, you, you get slower and slower and slower. And then when you get to the speed of light, the clock goes to zero, and that's the end of time. That's the end of that which is degenerating in the universe. That's the end of it. That's eternity. And I just wonder whether God just uses light. And also, I've been watching a lot of these uh, Christian uh, near-death experiences, and they all talk about seeing Jesus' light, you know, bright light. I just wonder if God uses that metaphor to show this is it. This is the ultimate. This is what we're heading for. And uh, if you want to be pure and righteous and holy, just think about the light and, 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 and walk in the light. Walk in righteousness and holiness and purity and so forth. All right, I'm finished. I'd really appreciate y'all listening to me. My attitude is one of gratitude, and with that platitude, I will end. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm returning from my splice of the teaching I did on John chapter 3, verses 11 through 21, which is the second half of the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. In our next audio, we're going to finish up chapter 3. We're going, we're going to cover verses 22 through 36. And we're going to see how John the Baptist decreases, but Jesus increases. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.